0: Well, hello again, everybody. This is Christian Basar, your host of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today, what we're going to be talking about is Russo-Serb relations during the Yugoslav War. So it's a pretty dark topic. The Yugoslav Wars were, um, of course, starting in the in the 90s, in the early to mid 90s. And uh, when the former Yugoslavia broke apart into its uh, constituent uh, states, which then became independent countries like Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And of course, we all, uh, many of us know, some remember, even, um, you know, some are prep some are too young to remember, but many are certainly old enough to remember that war that broke apart the U- Yugoslavian country. And... And uh, But, of course, the atrocities that were committed in Srebrenica and other places as well. So a very dark period in Europe's history and the last major war in, um, in the European continent until, of course, over the last few months, what's going on in Ukraine. So, but what I want to talk about is kind of the relationship between Serbia and Russia, which um, have been long considered themselves a sort of orthodox... Christian brothers, in a way, and uh, so I want to go a little bit into that aspect of the war. But first, I just want to give a quick little uh, quick little word, and we'll get right into the episode, so stay tuned. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the historical thoughts and interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you'd like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com/historical-thoughts, and again, that's patron.podbean/historical-thoughts. Now let's get back to the episode. So again, today what I'll be looking at is the Russo-Serb relations during the Yugoslav War, during the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And in this podcast, I'll focus on the religious aspect of, of this relationship during the war. Okay, so let's just get right into it. So religion is a very social aspect of being human. Faith engenders communication between individuals and groups, but it also gives adherents a sense of belonging and identity. This is due to the attendance of regular rituals, the holding of conferences, services, and the reading of common texts. Nation-states build their communities in similar ways. National communities are built upon, quote-unquote, interpreted or, quote, imagined spaces that are built upon national symbols, laws, and culture, which, of course, includes Religion. This is true for any society, but Zala Volcic specifically talks about this in the book Serbian Spaces of Identity, published in 2011. Those within the community are included within the space while others are often excluded. This can lead to a process of othering outsiders or creating a dichotomy between us and them. These national spheres can also move or be transplanted when their inhabitants move to other places and form a diaspora. In these ways, nationality or even nationalism and culture, again, including religion, are inexorably linked. Carl Jung believed that members of any imagined community, whether it be religious, political, national, or otherwise, they will lose individuality, right? So this leads to group action and identity. People from other belief systems or isms are seen as threatening, potentially. According to this theory, it's believed that individuals will go with the group, so to say, or which may act in direct opposition to the other excluded groups. This can lead to sectarianism, hatred, and even murder. It must be noted, however, that religion and other belief systems can also bind people from different groups together, we have seen how a religious space unifies those who share the same background and beliefs, but it can also be argued that religion does so even with those from different imagined communities. Take, for example, the words of the Christian God, when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, which according to the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible can be seen in Matthew five forty-four 44-45. There's also the universal nature of Christianity in the Bible, which suggests the forbiddance of racism and exclusion based on ethnic grounds. See Galatians 3.28, when the Apostle Paul was talking, was trying to address his, the controversy he was trying to address was the division between former Jewish Christians and also Gentile Christians. So his point was saying that Jesus died on the cross. So now if you, whether you were Jewish or whether you were a Gentile, if you're Christians, if you are baptized into Christ, if you are in Christ, those ethnic divisions, and then culture divisions don't matter, right? So this is the thing, right? Because I, oftentimes we hear about religion being a dividing uh, situation, and especially in the context of the, of, of the former Yugoslavia, is definitely, um, and, and that certainly is true. Yugoslavia is not the only example. There's Northern Ireland with uh, Catholic, between Catholics and Protestants, and various places in Africa that has also been a division uh, along language lines and ethnic lines as well. So that that certainly is the case. But we need to remember that many times, if people are following a religion, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will that either the groups either on a group or an individual level will necessarily hate. That of another group or another another belief that doesn't necessarily mean that, especially if they are following uh, commands in the scriptures like love your enemies and and uh, the focus is on the religion, not the ethnic background. And that's not Christianity either. That's not just Christianity either. You know, there no matter what the religious community is, there will be individuals, there will be groups within those that will rather that would rather, as the Kingdom of Heaven film says. I'd rather live with men than kill them, <laughs> right? So that's, that's the thing. But despite such teachings as just love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, despite such teachings found in the Bible, which is shared across Christian communities and spaces, the process of othering and sectarianism can still lead to violations of these very principles that these religions claim to uphold and claim to love and claim to abide by. So finally, sometimes a sense of community can cross the boundaries of individual imagined spaces and f- include those from other spaces, right? We talked about diasporas, right? For instance, another example is we often use terms such as the Muslim world, for example, to, d- to describe the community occupied by multiple countries, which possess their own individual separate imagined spaces and communities. And, but what happens? what they happen to have in common is the Islamic faith. And we use the term Christian world in a similar manner, or Christendom. It is simply a label to identify separate cultures and countries that predominantly follow the Christian religion, whether they are Orthodox Christian or Catholic Christian or uh, Protestants. For this study, we will look at the community formed between Russia and Serbia thanks to their common Orthodox Christian faith. And we will specifically look at how this common Orthodoxy had influenced their relationship during the time of the Yugoslavian Civil War of the 1990s. To analyze Russo-Serbian religious relations, we must first summarize the role of faith in both national communities. Both Serbia and Russia are Orthodox Christian, or Eastern Rite countries. The Greek words of the Orthodox faith are ortho, correct, and doxazo, belief. This gives both the Serbian and Russian Orthodox religious communities a claim of possessing the only true Christian belief system in opposition to Catholicism and Protestantism which are the two other major divisions within the Christian world also the orthodox faith gives serbian and russian believers in common core tenets such as a triune god the trinity the broken relationship between man and god sin the sacraments such as Christ, baptism chrismation and the and the eucharist and also the use of icons and liturgy in worship are also common to both Russian and Serbian Orthodox Christians. Now, again, I must note as well that the idea of the Trinity, the broken relationship between man and God, sin, and and, and in and in some ways the the ideas of sacraments or mysteries, as they're called in Orthodoxy, those Orthodox Christianity shares those and many of those in common with with. Uh, Catholicism and Protestantism as well. You know, the uh, Orthodox and Catholics will agree on issues on the issues of the Trinity. There will be there will be little disagreements within that, but overall, yes, uh, the idea that man is sinful and needs to be reconciled to God through Christ that's a common idea in Orthodoxy, Catholicism, and Protestantism. But you know, the idea of whether it's faith or faith in works or faith only that then that's where the debate will be. But the basic ideas are are still the same. But you won't expect to see icons and liturgy in a Baptist church, (laughs) right? So there there are differences, of course. But the basic ideas of belief in a triune God and God God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, that's common among most of of these groups. Okay, okay. And in the Orthodox Christian world, going back to the Orthodox Christian world specifically, there's the concept of autocephaly, from a Greek term that implies a self-ruling autonomous organization. This idea results in the existence of multiple Orthodox churches that are distinct from each other based on ethnicity. Hence, there are separate communities, which include the Russian Orthodox Church, hereafter ROC, the Serbian Orthodox Church, which I'll call the SOC, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, UOC, and more. More recently in Ukraine, there was the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is a, sort of a Ukrainian church that was uh, given autocephaly that was not um, in line with the Moscow Patriarchate, which the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is, is somewhat more connected with the Moscow Patriarchate. These different churches are all united under the authority of the Ecumenical Patriarch in Istanbul, who is considered the, quote, greatest among equals. The central authority allows each national church to develop its own identity under a local patriarch with the responsibility of managing multiple church regions called dioceses. Yet, in addition to the ecumenical patriarch, orthodox unity is achieved through the underlying common practice and belief of orthodoxy as previously described, with the belief in the trinity, sin, and so on. Borders, territory, and ethnicity thus do not limit Christ's sacrifices on the cross, Despite the national practice of autocephaly, sacred collectives are created both within the individual Orthodox communities and between them. But, again, you know, this is a whole another issue. Um, there is a lot of issue between those churches as well. Like I briefly mentioned, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Yes, different organizations. And so there's a lot of issues between them. But also, not only with the alleged tie, the U.S.C.'s alleged ties to Moscow and everything like that, but also, of course, with the war happening in Ukraine, that is also another issue. Um, and so, obviously, the Moscow, Moscow Orthodox, the the Mo, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. There's always this talk about, you know, we are the true church. This is a, uh, or one of these churches is a schismatic church, and this is. This is breaking away. Sometimes you'll see on articles where a priest, and even talking about an indiv- individual priest, talks about repenting of um, being a schismatic, right? Repenting of of breaking the unity and coming back into the fold of this whatever church organization. I believe recently it was the Serbian Orthodox Church and the uh, Macedonian Orthodox Church, uh, Macedonian organization, they... they um, exchange reconciliation i believe it was it was a few weeks ago so there there is not so much unity in this orthodox world in that in that case right you know um there's there is division there is accusations of you know this per- this church is schismatic this church is these churches are our friends we're breaking out of communion with this church and so on so that that does happen but there is that shared Orthodox Christian space between them. The Serbian Orthodox Church achieved its autocephaly with Saint Sava as its first head in 1219, which made the Serbian nation, quote, among the oldest Christian Orthodox peoples, according to Dragilub Djordjevic. Christos Milonas notes a few factors that helped to create the national nature of Serbian Christianity autocephaly, and also the millet system of the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled Serbia from the mid-1400s until the early 1800s. And under the millet system, the Serbs were placed under the authority of local local non-Muslim Orthodox religious leaders and church submission to political authority. The Russian Orthodox Church has held a similar importance in constructing national identity in Russia as well. Russian Christianity has its roots going back to the baptism of Rus in 988, With a millennia-long history of orthodoxy, it's hardly surprising that in modern times, being orthodox is considered an important part of, quote, being Russian. This especially became apparent after the fall of atheistic communism in 1991. It is worth noting that despite orthodoxy's importance to Russian identity, religious knowledge and practice have been noted as being fairly low in Russian society overall. The same phenomenon has been identified in Serbia as well. It would be very negligent to apply this to all Serbian Orthodox Christians, of course. But for many, the practice of the faith is an exercise in nationality. Jim Forrest, writing about the Serbian Orthodox Church, has said this, An icon in someone's home can be more a sign of being Serbian than Christian. Back in the early 1980s, well before the war in and breakup of Yugoslavia, a Serbian orthodox publication said that, quote, a Serb without faith was not a real Serb. In Serbian nationalist circles, Christ was made into Serbia's Tsar. The son of God was thus transformed into a national leader. Both Russia and Serbia have similar secular histories that are also worth noting. We've briefly seen how Serbia was under Muslim Ottoman Turkish control, but in medieval times, Russia was for centuries under the dominion of the Golden Horde, another Muslim non-Christian power. More relevant to our current study is the common history of World War II. In Russia, the Soviet Union's fight against Nazi German invaders is one of the most dominant memories in modern society, especially under President Vladimir Putin. In Serbia, the memory of World War II is a bit more complicated because of the fighting between Marshal Tito's communist partisans, the fascist Croatian Ustashev regime, and monarchist Chetniks. But Tito's ultimate victory gives modern Serbia a memory of confronting fascism, just like in Russia. Zala Volcic asserts that World War II was the start of, quote, Yugoslav, and thus eventually Serb, identity. Both Serbia and Russia have histories of communism, as parts of the old Yugoslavia and Soviet Union, respectively. However, though the topic this topic is outside the scope of our study right now, it must be mentioned that these two communist nations had strained relations after 1948. So, in this way, Serbian and Russian histories have not always traveled in parallel. I must also note that even though parallels are rife throughout history, Parallels do not necessarily mean something happens because of the parallels. The fact that comparisons can be made between two societies or countries or cultures does not necessarily mean they will be carbon copies of each other. For example, as I've said before in a previous episode, not every communist country is exactly like the other. So parallels are fine to make. I think the comparisons and parallels are fine to make, but we do need to be careful with them. Having said that, There is one last commonality between the Serbian and Russian societies that must be investigated. Circles within both the SOC and ROC have expressed a mistrust of the Western world. John Anderson suggests that this is partially due to the ancient schism between Eastern and Western Christianity, but it also has roots in some cultural differences. In both the Serbian and Russian religious organizations, Western European culture has been perceived as humanistic, nihilistic, anarchist, materialistic, and hedonistic responsible for bringing morally corrupting influences into the orthodox polity, or the orthodox world. This grim view of the West is in stark contrast to the vision of Serbian orthodoxy within nationalistic circles. That vision suggests a divine mission in which the Serb nation, quote, based on Christ's immortal people, ultimately accomplishes by putting its faith in God, or, quote, higher meaning of history. According to this view, Serbia is a Christian kingdom that need not fear of persecution, or destruction from the West or any other source. In fact, such trials are to be embraced. If Christ is our Tsar, this ideology says, why should we fear persecution from the enemy West or another adversary? An example of these hardships inflicted upon the Serbian nation was the Battle of Kosovo, a battle in 1389, in which the Turks defeated the Serbs. The Turks left the field because they suffered great losses in the fight, and their leader was also killed. But Serbia's independence was essentially voided as a result of this battle, and by uh, 1459, 70 years later, Serbia officially became part of the Ottoman Empire. Yet, Mitya Vilikonia has noted that this defeat was turned into a kind of victory in Serbian memory. Tsar Lazar, the Serbian leader who was also killed at Kosovo, was declared a saint. But more importantly, the Battle of Kosovo became part of the myth of a holy Serbia, the nation with Christ, again, named the Tsar of it. It was said that the Lazar decided to forsake an independent and worldly kingdom in exchange for a heavenly one. Thus, the Serbian people were given the mission to, in the words of Dragilub Georgievich, to, quote, fight and die for the honorable cross and golden freedom, for orthodoxy and national independence, end quote. The disaster at Kosovo was simply another episode in the, quote, millennial struggle for survival. A strong social memory was formed, thanks to the combined hit power of history and religion. Serbian rulers became saints, and the SOC, or the Serbian Orthodox Church again, became a guardian and anchor of Serbian identity, which was vital during the period of Turkish-Muslim dominance. But Velikonya goes further, saying that the SOC in this myth of Holy Serbia also provided a hopeful eschatology. If Serbia was a heavenly kingdom, quote, someday the story would end well. This orthodox identity also provided a differentiation from Serbia's neighbors, such as Catholic Croatia and Muslim Bosnia. This brings us to the Yugoslavian War of the 1990s, during which the rival religious communities were driven to collective bloody action against each other. According to Paul Mosius, religion was not an individual practice in the Balkans, but a social one. Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and Muslims, he says, were more likely to call themselves a people of God, in his words. Salvation was made into a national attribute, going far beyond that of an individual soul. Note the contrast of this attitude towards religion with the Protestant focus that we're more familiar with in the West, which often asks, are you the individual saved? Drago Georgievich also believes that the religious differences and strength of faith identities in the former Yugoslavia contributed to the country's disintegration. He notes that these religious tensions increased in the 1980s. This was a time when nationalism was rising within Yugoslavia's individual republics. The country was going through economic and social hardship, and atheistic communism was declining across Eastern Europe as a whole. Though the later Yugoslav war was not initially a religious battle, it became one, with the advent of religious writing supporting their respective nationalist factions. The destruction of houses of worship added to this dimension of the conflict. Georgievich's pre-war warning emphasizes this point. He said, if the churches do not reconcile, nations will neither. The national nature of religion in the Balkans made it very difficult to see where politics and religion ended. In this way, political decisions were made with religious identities in mind, and religious communities were deeply invested in political matters. Political leaders such as the Yugoslavian and Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic and Croatia's Franzjo Tudjman coupled themselves with nationalistic religious identities, giving them great political support. During the war, it was reported that the SOC cooperated with the nationalist leader of the Bosnian Serbs, Radovan Karadzic. The Serbian Church was also noted for spreading the idea that Muslim Bosnians and Catholic Croats were mounting a conspiracy against the Serbs. This tied into the East-West economy we looked at earlier. Serbian religious publications felt that they could not trust non-Orthodox countries to help them against Catholic enemies. In some publications, for example, the Serbian people were painted as victims because of a poor international opinion of them and a perceived smear campaign against them. For example, according to an article by Dimitij Kalezic about the wartime Serbian Orthodox Church, it was perceived that the, quote, the Serbs were immediately blamed and only the Serbs were accused quote, for the July 1995 massacre at Srebrenica. Even though it acknowledged that Muslims were hurt at Srebrenica, One Serbian article even asserted that the accusation against Serbs of committing a massacre or genocide was false, adding to the narrative of Serbian national victimhood. The SOC maintained that the Serbs were fighting a defensive war and Serbian atrocities were condemned as mere excesses, not planned genocides or not planned massacres. Now that we have seen a little bit of religion's role in the Yugoslavian war, at least mostly from the Serbian side, We can look at how Serbian and Russian relations played their part in this. During the conflict, there was the idea of ancestral allies, so to say. The Croats' culture typically made them side with the Western world, while the Serbs' Orthodox ties with Russia made them natural allies, according to this view of ancestral allies. This alliance resulted in Russian shows of support for Serbian nationalist claims. In 1984, well before the war, when the SOC was printing articles appealing for Serbian minorities in Kosovo, the Russian Orthodox Church Patriarch of the time, Pimen, visited the region with great applause and adoration from his Serbian hosts. There was a continu- this was a continuation of the 19th century tradition of Serbians writing position- petitions to the Russian Tsars. Fifteen years later, in 1999, during NATO's bombing campaign against Serbia over the Kosovo crisis, Russian Patriarch Alexei II lamented NATO's actions and declared Kosovo a, quote, Serbian unorthodox holy ground. Katja Richters has also noted some articles written by a re- Russian religious body called the Department for Relations with the Armed Forces and Law Enforcement Agencies, or DRAFLI. These pieces discuss the destruction of Serbian Orthodox sites by, quote, Islamicized Albanians, depicting the Albanian Muslims as enemies of the Serbs. <laughs> now, I personally find this a rather interesting irony, because Islam is tr- is officially considered a traditional faith in Russia. One thing I have in mind, though, as I say this, that this was in the late nineteen nineties, and this was when Russia was still dealing with the wars in Chechnya, right? Now the situation nowadays, today, the situation is completely different, as Chechnya is a major Russian ally, and while well, Chechnya is part of Russia, but um, but the Chechen government is a major Russian ally and Chechen soldiers are fighting in Russia's offensive in Ukraine. So the situation's a, a, quite a bit different, I would say, than the late 1990s. Besides intellectual and ideological support, there was some very real interaction between Russian and Serbian interests during the Yugoslavian conflict. One SOC article from the time noted how other Orthodox churches and non-Orthodox organizations were contacted to follow the Serbian church's example of offering aid to all he needed help. It also spoke of how the ROC, the Russian Orthodox Church, along with the Romanian Orthodox Patriarch and even non-Orthodox clergy, were invited to meet in Sarajevo, Bosnia, to observe the wartime conditions. This piece also did not fail to mention how the Catholic Archbishop of Zagreb, and a Muslim leader as well, were not present. Russians also offered military aid to the Serb cause. Janusz Bugayski mentions how in August 1991, a $2 billion Soviet-Yugoslavian arms deal fell through because of the 1991 communist coup attempt in the soon-to-collapse Soviet Union. Though the Yugoslavian president Milosevic supported the coup, this disagreement was quickly resolved when Yugoslavia's very existence became a priority. Throughout the 1990s, Russian weapon systems made their way into Serbian hands, though this support was somewhat limited, Bugaisky says, due to Russian fears of provoking NATO. Back then, Russian-NATO relations were somewhat different and better than nowadays. During the Yugoslavian breakup in the early to mid-1990s and the Kosovo crisis a few years later, Russian volunteers known as kontraktniki joined the Serbian fighters. They guarded convoys and smuggled supplies, but they also participated in the fighting, with run Russian general even taking command of a unit in Serbian Krajina. Approximately 2,000 to 3,000 kontraktinki ended up in the Yugoslav War, with the Serbian Interior, Min- Interior Ministry and Slovodan Milosevic's brother, Borislav, having an active hand in recruitment. And at that time, he was the Serbian ambassador to the Russian Federation. There has been debate over whether these Russian fighters were mercenaries, which is technically illegal under Russian law, or volunteers. You know, it's all about wording sometimes. The economic hardships Russia suffered during the 1990s made it easier for some to decide to fight abroad, but Russians were also outraged over Western attacks on Serbia and wanted to fight for a quote, orthodox little sister. For some, the desire to fight for orthodoxy and Slavic brotherhood was stronger than the need for money. In 2003, a Bosnian news source stated that additional contracting key even came from orthodox Ukraine, Greece, and Romania, not just Russia. In these ways, the Russian and Serbian societies interacted during times of strife in the Balkans. Due to their common Orthodox faith, similar histories, and shared distrust of the West, it is easy to see how nationalistically-minded Russians and Serbian believers would find common cause against Catholic Croats, Bosnian Muslims, and intervening Western powers. These commonalities led to both moral and military support from Russians who wished to defend Serbia. In such an ideologically charged conflict as the Yugoslavia's breakup— Such interaction between the Russian and Serbian imagined spaces is indeed unsurprising. So I just want to spend a little bit of time before the end to comment on some other things that I might not have mentioned during the rest of the episode. So the former Yugoslav world, Croatia, Slovenia, uh, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Montenegro, all those other countries in that area that made up the former Yugoslavia, <clears throat> that was a. There was quite a lot of uh, religious mixing, as as we've talked about. So, for example, of course, the simple matter is that the Serbs are Orthodox Christian, Croats and Slovenians are Catholic Christian, and Bosnians are Muslims, and so on. Of course, that's very simplistic, but but the the area has a lot of long religious history. So it's a small region with many religious differences, right? So Tomislav and zvonimir for example early were early croatian kings from the 10th to 11th centuries crowned by popes and the bosnian there was the bosnian bogomil religion 13th to 14th centuries but eventually there was conversion to islam serbia was christianized in the 9th century but with the formation of the autocephalous serbian orthodox church in the 13th century right so that so they have a lot of long religious history and and by the Renaissance period, re- religion here was more important to identity than the idea of a nation state, right? So that was uh, – and <clears throat> also what's important to remember is that I think we touched on this a little bit during the episode like with uh, with Serbia and, and the Ottoman Empire. But there, a lot of the countries and the cultures in this area were – had gone through a time of occupation or submission to foreign empires. We mentioned Serbia and the Ottomans, but also the Croats were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire for for centuries as well. So, and that was kind of a battleground. What is now modern Croatia was also a bit of a battleground between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Turks as well. And there was a fair amount of uh, influence upon uh, Croatia from uh, what is now Croatia from the... Um, from the Venetians as well, from Italy. So, but we don't want to <laughs> go too far into that right now. But the idea is that there were a lot of long religious histories, uh, different religious histories, in a small area. And so that's where a lot of the, um, you know, for those who want to have an excuse for hatred, and that's, that's what it is, to, um, to use religious difference as an excuse for hatred when people choose to do that, and if you have people like uh, people in the, with that mindset in such a small area, nationalism altogether added on top, there's, there's a problem, right. So it's a small area with a lot of different religious beliefs inside it. And also just a very quick comment on Russia and Serbia being uh, having common history. again, both being Orthodox countries, both around the same time. Serbia was Christianized again in the ninth century and Russia, what is now Russia, successor state to the medieval Kievan Rus, and with Kiev, of course, now being in modern Ukraine, being Christianized in 988 in the late 10th century. And both have opposed various Western non-Orthodox powers throughout their history, right, and not necessarily together at the same time. So if you go back far enough into Russian history, you have them fighting against the German Teutonic Knights, Poland, Sweden and then of course with uh, Serbia you have um, them fighting Croats over the over the years as well and also fighting against the Eastern Ottomans right And also more recently both have opposed themselves or have considered themselves adversaries of the NATO monolith composed of mainly Catholic and, and Protestant countries, but of course with some Orthodox countries as well such such as uh, Bulgaria and Romania. And of course, there were Muslim enemies as well: Ottoman Turkey over the years, Chechen rebels in the in the '90s and the early 2000s, Botsnia Hadrizgova, and more recent, even more recently, the Islamic State. With Russia attacking the Islamic State as well as Syrian rebels in in Syria, and so this is what this is part of the common East-West dichotomy as well. Early Early Serbia, for example, was described as equidistant between the Byzantine and Roman centers of church and political power, but definitely choosing the Eastern Christian path of converting to Orthodoxy instead of Catholicism. And of course, there's an interesting thing about World War II. I remember mentioning both of them had connections with World War II, both Russia and modern-day Serbia have great memories of World War II, fighting fascism, fighting a Western fascist country, Germany, and and, and its allies. And so Yugoslav partisans under Marship, uh, uh, Marshal uh, Josip uh, Tito fought the Axis, Axis powers, including the local Ustasa regime, which headed the independent state of Croatia. Uh, and the Russian Orthodox Church at the time mentioned Axis persecutions of Orthodox clergy in Serbia as well. Uh, For example, the uh, Serbian Orthodox Church Patriarch Gabriel, whom the Germans had dethroned and imprisoned. So that was another common area uh, where both Russia and Serbia had common memory of, of World War II. And then this brought us to memories of fascism in the more modern period. So the Metropolitan of Montenegro compared the NATO bombings of Kosovo in 1999 to the Crusades, for example, in which Western Catholic fighters had sacked Constantinople, and which was the traditional capital of Eastern Christianity. And so the so-called godless order of NATO was considered a quote, continuation of fascism and Nazism, which was kind of interesting because, you know, a bunch of killing of people in Kosovo was happening at the same time on the side of the Serbs. So, you know. And there was even, anti to Ustasha, rhetoric in September 2015 when Croatia blocked most of its border crossings with Serbia over the massive influx of Syrian refugees. So and I remember being told as well that during the the war in the 90s there were there was lots of rhetoric about um the, the Croats the Ustasha regime is coming back, you know, the the Ustasha are coming back. So there was this fear of the fascist Ustasha uh, fascist Croatian Ustasha regime which was brutal it was fascist it was evil but there's still that there was uh, even in recent times there was that memory of the Ustasha coming back and therefore that that memory is you has been used at various times and of course you know then we also need to talk about how the Russian government has talked about rampant fascism quote-unquote in the post-Euromaidan Ukrainian government So right now, there's even a war, partially over the so-called goal to denazify Ukraine. Of course. Are there fascists in Ukraine? Absolutely. But is the government itself fascist? I don't think so. So that's that's the thing, where there's this common memory of fascism between Russia and Serbia. This goes back to this East versus West dichotomy, right? There was one American-based Rokor priest, and Rokor is Russian Orthodox Church out of Russia. So this is a little bit out of context, but this I think it touches on this East versus West uh, difference in thinking, where he called Rus a holy kingdom in opposition to Western evils such as jingoism and capitalism. And this idea was found in a book called The Virtue of War, Reclaiming the C- Classic Christian Traditions East and West by Alexander Webster and Daryl Cole. So it's, and and again, a lot of this, like this East versus West, yes, a lot of it goes to geopolitics. A lot of it goes to foreign policy. Yes, of course. For example, a lot of the trouble that we've had between the Western world and Russia, a lot of that is dealing with foreign policy, and a lot of that is dealing with um, security concerns. I do believe with the expansion of NATO and NATO not only uh, defending people in Kosovo and so on, but also making its own blunders in Libya and um, Syria, Afghanistan and, and Iraq, doing its own foolish things and very cynical things. And I shouldn't say NATO as a whole. Of course, Canada and France and Germany did not invade Iraq, but NATO as a whole did expand. NATO as a whole did attack uh, Libya in 2011, and uh, many NATO countries, under the leadership of the United States, went into Iraq on its own volition in 2003. But also, there is an element of culture, society, and morality here. Certainly, when it comes to uh, people feeling ha- that might have more nationalist views in in a religious organization, for example, like someone in. And the Orthodox Church, either Serbian or Russian, again not everyone, but they might see the Western world as trying to create the, like create the human individual to be God, right? And that's leading to things like nihilism and and everything like that. So while the while that person will want to focus on creating again kind of a a heavenly kingdom or creating my nation to be a godly place, right? One that rejects jingoism and capitalism, right? So according to these, according to these views, and of course, not every person is going to think this way. And there are many people in the West who also decry the Western world for uh, what they see as wrong and immoral. But it's a but this East versus West, this cultural difference. While America and other Western countries will see, for example, gay marriage as a as an essential part of being a democracy, an essential part of being a fair and, and good and moral society and an American value, perhaps, while someone in in, in other parts of the world, even perhaps a conservative Western country, someone might say that that is not right. <laughs> so that's where this East versus West goes in. And nationalist nationalistic Orthodox groups have even gone... Uh, like, have taken that to an extreme as well. So, for example, like, the Pan-Slavist fringe, Orthodox groups in Russia, considered Serbia a fortress in the West in the battle between Slavdom and the Latin West. So, again, going back to this East versus West, you could probably even go back all the way to the Great Schism in the 11th century between the Western and Eastern churches for background to this. And Alexander Plachanov, he headed a group called the Orthodox Communists. He was in. He was Russian, but he decided he defined something as "quote unquote" Orthodox not if it was Orthodox Christian, but if it was Soviet or anti-liberal. Inclu- this included Serbia's Slobodan Milosevic and even North Korea's Kim Jong Il. So this is this is where it gets uh, really interesting in many in kind of a dark way, but this goes back to this East versus West, where people will. Um, see, my culture is against this other culture. This other culture thinks that this is that uh, an evil thing is right, and I think that evil thing is evil. All right, so that's where um, that's where it is, and a lot of this goes back to cultural views of what is permissible. <laughs> that goes beyond just uh, this podcast episode. But in any case, uh, those are some of the end notes, if you will. I'd like to finish with, but. Either way, whatever you're I just wanna say at the end. I, I always like to end my episodes with kind of a um kind of a lesson, I guess, a life lesson. You know, I'll be the I should start calling this the historical dad podcast. Um, but the but the thing is, no matter what belief system you hold, you hold to, no matter whether you are a Christian, a Muslim, or anything else, or an atheist of any of, of whatever beliefs you have. Just please make sure that whatever you do, that you love each other and you care for each other. That's the thing. You know, we've been talking about things like genocides and everything like that. And also with this war in Ukraine, a lot of evil has been leading up to that. And a lot of evil has been done as well. And this is where, you know, you should not succumb to hate in any way. You should not let some uh, a country's leaders or anything like that lead you to a hateful attitude. Forget hateful action. Don't even have a hateful attitude. Right? This is what, and a lot of things will come back, you know, we'll have a memory of something that when a, when a society eats memory and that's what they live on, that can be a very, memory is very important. Memory is very important. Social memory and personal memory is very important. Absolutely. But you need to make sure that your, how you act on a memory is a good way that you treat your fellow man with with care and respect. That's all the all we we need to do. And a lot of people and nationalists and um, and whether they be in Russia, Serbia, Croatia, America, many wherever they are, often forget this, or they say that it is their duty to hurt someone of another of another faith or another religion or another nationality because they're not us. But that's that's what we shouldn't be like that. And that's me ending as a um, uh, on a particular serious note, but I believe it's important. We need to make sure that um, our memories, we use our memory to propel us to do good things and that we care for each other no matter what they, no matter what they are, what group they are. That's that's what we need to do. And with that, Thank you so much for listening. This is the 40th podcast episode. Can you imagine that? Oof, it's it's nice having 40 episodes out there. But um, I appreciate all you listening. I appreciate all your uh, support and um, and comments and everything. And uh, I hope you're having a great day. And I hope that you um, you are doing well. And I hope that you're taking care of yourself and each other. Bye bye, and we'll take care. Uh, take care, and uh, and keep well.